Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Perhaps the greatest diplomatic achievement of the last decade was the agreement that was hammered out between the United States, its allies, and the Republic of Iran over Iran's nuclear program. Wendy Sherman uh, was the diplomat at the table who was the point person for the U.S. during those negotiations. It was the capstone on a long and interesting career in politics, government, and diplomacy. She came by the Institute of Politics the other day, and we talked about all of that. Wendy Sherman, welcome. Thank so you. So happy to see you. You know, we've known each other for some time, but um, just to get ready for this conversation today, you know, I did a little reviewing of your life, I, and I I knew you from politics. Like, I mm-hmm. you, years ago... Uh, when you were with uh, Senator Mikulski. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, I didn't realize quite how varied your Indeed. your life was. I mean, like, why can't you hang on to a job? I don't, <laughs> what, what is the deal with that? Well, you know, I, t- I uh, gave some commencement addresses last year, and the theme of it was that I wished all those young people an unexpected life. Um, I've never had a five-year plan. I've been really privileged and fortunate to have great opportunities come along. And, you know, I really started out with parents who were quite activists. Um, yeah, I was interested in that. How did, Tell me about them and, where, and their background. Yeah, so— um, This is in Baltimore. This was in Baltimore, but uh, my dad was a Marine. He was at Guadalcanal. He got injured— uh, and uh, came back to the West Coast, uh, was married to my mother, who had graduated high school. I think that in another era, she would have gone on to college and done great things uh, for herself. Um, but uh, my dad was still an active duty Marine, but he thought there should never be war again, nor did my mother. And so this was or- during World War II. This was at the end of World War II, mm-hmm. and or getting to the end of World War II. And so he helped to organize what became the American Veterans Committee. And my mother and father were at the founding of the UN in 1945 in San Francisco. And it really was emblematic of the rest of their lives. They were activists when uh, one Rosh Hashanah holiday, my family is Jewish, my dad went to hear a young new rabbi, Morris Lieberman, who gave a sermon uh, talking about how important the civil rights movement was. He was trying to sit in with other clergy in restaurants because Baltimore was still a very segregated city uh, to make sure that African Americans could go into any restaurant they wanted. And he talked about um, how this was a, a different kind of Holocaust, actually. And it really moved my dad, who was in residential real estate. He went to see Morris Lieberman afterwards, and he said, well, what can I do? And Lieberman said, well, you can advertise open housing. And my father said, well, if I do that, my business will go down the tubes. He said, well, you asked me what? (laughs) 
You could do. That's what you can that's do. A, so that's he, what happens when you ask your rabbi questions. Indeed, like that. indeed. So he talked to my mom, and that is what he did. He ended up finding Frank Robinson, a great uh, baseball player, first African American in the Baltimore Orioles, a house, uh, and uh, went on to do many things. And indeed, his business did suffer, and we got bomb threats on our house and on our lives. But it taught me that you have to have courage to fight for what you want no matter what the risks. Go backward a little bit. What, what about their families? Uh, how did they Well, their families are quite journey? different. My mother was raised in a very poor family. Her father died when she was 16 of a heart attack. She came also, home. Also a Jewish also, family? Also a Jewish family, Orthodox Jewish family, actually. And so she grew up rather poor. In the, San Francisco? No, no, in Baltimore. In Baltimore. And... Um, uh, her moment of excitement was to find a penny under her plate that she would have to spend any way she wanted in a days when you could actually buy something with a penny. Um, and she took um, not an academic but a secretarial track in high school because she had to go to work. And she was introduced on a blind date to a guy named uh, Mal Sherman uh, who uh, was going into the Marine Corps he had gone to the University of North Carolina for a year and a half, but decided to enlist. He came from a rather wealthy Philadelphia family. His father had committed suicide when my father was five years old. And my dad had been sent off to boarding school with his sister in Switzerland from the age of five to the age of 10. So his life couldn't have been more different yeah, no than kidding. my mother's. Couldn't have been more different. Uh, and uh, But he and my mother uh, found common cause with each other and ended up having a very long marriage. Now, you, uh, your career started off in a much different place. You, you went off to college. I know she went to Smith College and then to Boston University. Uh, why that? That's quite a change, change from yes. one to another. Well, it was for two reasons. Um, after my sophomore year in college, I actually got married, not to my current husband, uh, but uh, to a guy I was in love with then. So he was starting Boston College Law School. And uh, in those days, you followed. Uh, and so I wanted to transfer. And I decided to go to Boston University because at that point, I was going to work part time. And I sort of went to classes. I didn't even go to graduation when I graduated, uh, but worked actually organizing in a community housing project in Boston and working with teenagers uh, and knew I wanted to eventually become a community organizer, go to social work school. Uh, took a little bit of a detour, but a useful one. Um, after my husband graduated and I worked as a social worker at Middlesex County Hospital in Waltham, Massachusetts, we moved to Georgia, uh, where uh, my then husband went and worked as a lawyer for Georgia Legal Services. And I helped run uh, a community mental health service hotline and do outreach in rural Georgia. My partner for that rural outreach was an African-American guy. And you can imagine in the 70s uh, showing up in Egypt, Georgia, or Springfield, Georgia, a white Jewish married woman with a single black guy wasn't exactly welcomed by everyone. Um, but it was a real learning experience that people lived very different lives than I had been used to. Even though Baltimore was sort of a southern town, it wasn't Savannah, Georgia. It wasn't Egypt, Georgia. And I think that was a really important lesson for me, to 
understand. I, I tell people if they want to understand Savannah, there was an obituary of a 95-year-old woman and it started, although not a native Savannah, and she lived here the last 93 of her 95 <laughs> years. Uh, and that sort of summed up what Savannah was about. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that is kind of stunning about our politics, or striking, I should say, not stunning, and concerning is how siloed we are and how little appreciation um, people have for the folks who live in the other silo. Uh, so you got out of your silo. Yeah, I got out of my silo. I did, you know, this was very much the time of the women's movement. Um, and, uh, the other reason I had gone to Boston, I never finished that thought was because it was activism against the Vietnam War and Smith College was very quiet. And I went to march every week, which Mm -hmm. I certainly was able to do in Boston. So in Savannah, I started a consciousness-raising group with some other expats, which is what we called ourselves, because we felt like we were in another country, uh, as well as some locals. And it was very revealing and very helpful, because the women who were local were leading a very different life. But we found we had common bounds and common human experience. And that, that was really important to learn and understand. You... Uh... You ultimately returned to Baltimore, and you got involved in politics. How did you? How did that happen? Well, that was also sort of strange. Uh, I was working for after I got a master's in social work. I ultimately went to work through a, an odd circumstance uh, for a guy named Art Napperstack, who was dean of the Washington Public Affairs Center for USC in Washington D.C working on some community mental health grants uh, that he was the principal for. And I also taught undergraduates public policy, which was strange because what did I know, quite frankly. Um, I hope that wasn't your pitch. No, that was not my pitch. Uh, I knew some things, but but not as much as I should have, quite frankly. Uh, But Art was very good friends with a congresswoman named Barbara Mikulski. And uh, Barbara was trying to create shelters for battered women and looking for ways to finance that. And Art knew I had some ideas because I was looking at how to create self-help opportunities for people. Uh, and so he introduced us. We were both from Baltimore. We'd both gone to the University of Maryland School of Social Work. Barbara's a little older than I am. We didn't know each other, but we knew of each other. And we became very good friends, went to movies together, and uh At one point, she was looking for a new chief of staff, and I knew I always wanted to go to Washington at some point. So we decided, well, why not? Now, you – and by the way, the way you say Baltimore uh, marks you as a native of of Baltimore. But you – Talk to me about the politics of Baltimore. And we, we, we were speaking earlier about Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. People think of her as this uh, kind of effete uh, mm-hmm. San Franciscan, but she comes from one of the the bare-knuckle political Absolutely. families of, of Baltimore. Absolutely. She comes from the D'Alessandro family, uh, and her dad was mayor. Her brother was mayor. Uh, they ruled Little Italy, the Italian Catholic uh, section of Baltimore. Uh, so she learned, uh, particularly in a large family, her mom was one uh, tough cookie as well, uh, how to do bare knuckles politics. And I've always been a great admirer because she has married uh, the bare knuckle politics of Baltimore, which are very ethnic politics, very tribal politics, quite frankly, um, and very much in the street 
uh, you know, Baltimore had a tradition for years of walking around money. Right. Uh, how you we got, don't know about that in Chicago. Yeah, though. no, I know you don't know about that in Chicago. Uh, very peculiar uh, thing. And um, she married that with uh, her roots in San Francisco and not just the liberalism of San Francisco, but the multiculturalism of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nancy came to understand the world because San Francisco was becoming an Asian melting pot, uh, as well as uh, a liberal bastion, as we think of it. It was also becoming a tech haven. And she's really blended all of those pieces together to keep a rather uh, raucous caucus uh, together. Yeah. Just on the, on, do you remember the 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 uh, D'Alessandros, uh, do you remember that period? And how did that? How did they uh, fit into your your parents' struggle for uh, for uh, integration and sure, civil I rights? I remember that period. I wasn't all that old at the time that uh, Nancy's dad was mayor, uh, but they um, they were trying to create changes, but in a very deliberative way. And Baltimore was really busting out at that point. Uh, you know, miscegenation, that is marriage between uh, different races, was not was still not law, I think, in changed law in 1956. So it was quite, quite a bit of time after the World War when African Americans and Caucasians uh, marched together uh, to try to put down Hitler. So um, it was very much neighborhood politics. It was very much uh, hand-to-mouth kind of politics. And the reason that Barbara Mikulski became the star she was, she came from South Baltimore, Southeast Baltimore, which was quite white, quite Catholic. Some people thought racist, uh, but the um, uh, folks were looking to put a six-lane highway through her neighborhood. And so South Baltimore and East and West Baltimore came together, the African-American community and the white community, to stop that six-lane highway. And she became a rock star for creating a community organization to stop the road, uh, and then went on to the city council. And then ultimately, when Paul Sarbanes uh, decided he would run for the Senate, it opened up a seat in the House, uh, and uh, uh, Senator Sarbanes' decision was uh, the greatest day of her life. It set her on a road that made her the longest-serving woman in Congress ever. It's interesting because of the background that you came from. She came from this ethnic neighborhood in... in uh, right, in and Baltimore. I came from a, a rather middle-class uh, Jewish community background. We moved to the Baltimore County uh, not long after I started elementary school. Uh, so I came, lived a suburban life uh, for most of my years. And so when you made this transition into government with uh, Mikulski, what what uh, what adjustments did you have to make? There's a lot. I mean, when you organize, you're often organizing to get government to do things, which is different than being in government and being organized around and against. And Right. That's true. Except I think, you know, one of the reasons that uh, Barbara and I understood each other so well is we were both trained as organizers. And we understood that if you want to get something done, sometimes you speak past institutions directly to people and that you can uh, look at what you need to do to collect the support you need to get something done. So even though being in government is different, certainly, than being outside of government and being a rabble rouser and being able to really push your point of view and not necessarily anybody else's, 
in government, if you really want to legislate, if you want to accomplish goals, you've got to figure out how to bring people together and get that done. And those are similar skills. And, and I think what I've done in all of my life, I've always remained a community organizer and a social worker. My caseload has just changed. So I went from a community organizing in mental health to director of child welfare for the state uh, to politics for the state of Maryland and then worked in presidential politics uh, and then I got fortunate enough. I'm jumping ahead here, uh, so you may yeah. not be ready we, to get there. We got to, an hour to, here. Don't to, don't, uh, don't race ahead. Rights to uh, to the world. No, the the well, I wanted to ask you about the transition from of now from government to you managed uh, Senator Mikulski's campaign for the Senate, Congresswoman Mikulski's yep. campaign uh, for the Senate, uh, but you hadn't had. Not had, had campaign experience before that, right? My only campaign experience had been a volunteer for McCarthy and a volunteer for McGovern and organizing uh, as a volunteer um, campaign events, uh, but no real yeah. uh, understanding. So you were a foot soldier. Now you're a general. Now I was the general. I was the campaign manager. One of the things I had done for Barbara, though, when she was a congresswoman, is I had written a memo for her about what she would need to do if she wanted to run for Senate because she would be running to be the first Democratic woman ever elected in her own right. In the past, all other Democratic women who had become senators had been widows. Right, Muriel Humphrey. And and so forth. So um, one of the things that uh, I realized is that um, she might want to become a co-chair of the Mondale Ferraro campaign uh, because it would allow her to travel the country and get to know big donors uh, so that was part of the plan, uh, that she would need to go to other parts of the state besides Baltimore and come to know the state and take on speaking engagements. So I put a plan together of what she needed to do to prepare if she wanted to do this. And then because I was a wife, Barbara's chief of staff, and a brand-new mother, um, I decided I couldn't do all of this. And so after three years as her chief of staff, I left – but before the year I was gone was over, she was back at me to come and run her campaign. So I did it. Um, I've always been a good manager and able, again, it's another kind of a community organized effort to bring people together. But I started out, I had no money, no staff, and a Senate campaign to run. Um, I had an incredibly gifted candidate. Remind me what the politics of the was. So it, Matthias running, was the. No, Matthias had been the senator. He decided not to run again, mm-hmm. and I don't think she would have run if he'd run yeah, again. Yeah, he was sort of a legend. He in was Maryland. a legend, Republican, uh, Republican, moderate Republican, very moderate Republican. So um, she ran in the primary against Harry Hughes, the sitting governor, and Michael Barnes, a very popular yeah. congressman from Montgomery County, which was the wealthiest county in the state of Maryland. Uh, and uh, here was Barbara Mikulski, and as she said, because uh, you know she has a biting wit, yes. she said, I know people don't think that togas come in a size 14 petite, <laughs> um, but uh, I, I can do this. Um, and so one of the things that made a significant difference besides her extraordinary talent uh, and capability and understanding of people's day's, day-to-day needs um, is that um, Emily's List was had just been created. Emily's List is a, uh, a political action committee that raises money uh, to try to help Democratic pro-choice women get elected, and they 
bundle that money together because Emily stands for early money is like yeast mm-hmm. because it makes the dough rise. And a lot of women had not been successful because they couldn't compete financially with guys who used the old boys club to raise money. Uh, and so uh, Emily's List had tried with Harriet Woods, who had run for Senate from Missouri, Missouri. but, but yeah. they didn't quite get it together. They were brand new. But by the time uh, Mikulski ran, Emily's List knew they had a candidate that might be able to do the job. And so they went to work. And when the first um, federal elections campaign report came out, she was competitive. I think at the time it was something like $360,000, which sounds quaint. like nothing. Yes, that's quaint. quaint. That's lunch money today. Right, today. Yes. But at th- that time, um, in the first quarter of a Senate campaign in Maryland, that was a lot of money. I think at the end we only spent, you, you probably find this horrifying now, $3 million on this campaign, which at the time was a staggering amount for her to raise. Um, but that made people pay attention. Uh, mm-hmm. To her, yeah. The other thing that made people pay attention to her was her. I mean, she, mm-hmm. she. I mean, I don't think she was five feet tall, right? But she nope. was like an outsized personality, uh, a fire plug. One of my uh, friends and I think you worked with him for several years. Is David Doak was yep. her her media consultant. Yep. I was a young, just starting out in the business. I think we talked to consultant. you at the time, David. Yes. But ended up going with David Doak You did Bob the right Trump. thing. You did the right thing. Those guys are, 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 uh, <laughs> are, are very, very good. Uh, but uh, David uh, shared with me some of the ads that he was doing for her, and the most compelling were the ones where she was uh, just holding forth uh, yeah, there's a, with her aphorisms. Yeah, there's a famous one where she was – Walking through a market. Yes, and, that's the uh, one I remember. Yeah, yeah, running through a market, and uh, Bob Shrum was actually doing that one and just filming her as she walked through. Verite, total verite. And this very, this uh, guy and woman, uh, you know, certainly a little uh, on the heavy side uh, themselves, uh, stopped to chat with her, and she said just out of her own mouth, um, Counting my calories, I'm counting my blessings, and I'm counting my votes. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, it was a huge hit of an ad, yeah. and it was just no, it was disarming. Her. It was disarming because it was so it was so real. Yeah, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Wendy Sherman. Let me ask you: You won that race, uh, and you came to the Senate. And as you point out, she was the first Democratic woman elected. Uh, in her own right, uh, and you went with her. I did. Oh, not. you didn't go with no. her. That's right. You, I yes, did. I can see this. Right. You, you, you did. You I did this series I, of political chores after that. Right. I had decided that uh, I didn't want to go to the Senate. That I wanted to spend more time with my family. But quite frankly, that didn't last long either. I went back to state government in child welfare, and I learned a really important lesson. Sometimes you can't go backwards. You can only go forwards. If you've been in the big pond of Washington, it's hard to return entirely to what you once did. And so um, uh, I got a call. Would I help Michael Dukakis in his uh, effort to become president? And so I ended up uh, not only running Maryland for him and what was uh, uh, District of Columbia and looking after Virginia, but uh, opening the Washington office for Dukakis because the main campaign headquarters was in Boston. And I ultimately run, <coughs> ran, <coughs> excuse me, campaign 88 
the general election campaign at the Democratic National Committee. So I ended up getting engaged in presidential politics even more than I did for Mondale Ferraro. Uh, and ultimately, as you had pointed out earlier, worked for worked David Doak and Bob Trump and ran Emily's List for a while. So I was in politics for quite a while. The reason I raised it, though, was that um, what was it like for her? And you, you obviously remain close. What was it like for her arriving there now? Now there still aren't enough women in the Senate, but there are a couple of dozen or thereabouts. Right, and there were only two. Right. There were only two. And what what was what was that what was that experience like for her? Well, I think um, she thought very carefully about how she should conduct herself. And remember, as women showed up in Congress, I think people most remembered, in many ways, Bella Abzug, who you know sort of came on brash and loud. And she knew she had a reputation of being brash and, if not loud, certainly a spark plug. Uh, and um, Senator Mikulski. Senator Mikulski. And so she decided when she went to the Senate, she would start by really learning her way. And she went first to see Bob Byrd, who was the uh, majority leader and was chair of the Appropriations Committee. And she sort of sat at his feet and asked, get, let him school her, uh, help her decide what committee assignment she should take. So she took a very studious approach, knowing that she was an unusual person. And he was receptive. He was very receptive. Uh, she did have, at one point, a very interesting conversation with him about would he be comfortable if she wore pants, slacks, uh, a pants suit on the floor. That had never happened before. He did relent to allowing her to do that, uh, which made all of the s- women's staff in the Senate ecstatic uh, <laughs> because they had long wanted to get out of their dresses, particularly in cold weather, and, and uh, wear a pantsuit. So she, I think, worked very hard and made people understand she was going to do her homework. She understood history. She understood traditions. Uh, and she became very effective. She had a great senior senator, Paul Sarbanes, mm-hmm. who also was a fabulous partner, uh, wasn't, you know, sort of competitive with her, but wanted her to find her own place and her own way to shine. Uh, and she did. And she always made the personal her politics. Her dad uh, got Alzheimer's which is a pretty devastating disease, as we all know too well now. And uh, she realized that women all over were going poor, trying to um, take care of their aging or ill spouses. And so she created a piece of legislation, which became an amendment, uh, spousal impoverishment, allowing people to keep some of their assets so they didn't have to become poor while they cared for an elderly spouse. So everything for her came out of her day-to-day life or the day-to-day life of her constituents. Yeah, and and probably the day-to-day lives of the constituents of her colleagues, so it was resonant with them as well. Ab- absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So you, what's interesting to me is then you made a leap into <laughs> into. Uh, foreign policy, which really, I mean, you had done you had done all of this human service stuff, mental health. You'd been involved in politics, and then you went to work with uh, with Warren Christopher at the State Department after Bill Clinton got elected president. How how did you make that leap? Very strange. Um, I actually working with Bob uh, Schramm and David Doak, uh, partner in their firm, had made television ads for Bob Kerry, who was running against Clinton. So yes. I was not. 
a Bill Clinton supporter. Um, but uh, I was at home one night and I got a phone call from Tom Donilon, who ultimately went on to become uh, President Obama's national security advisor. Yes. Good friend. He, great guy. He was going to be, uh, and I'd known him since he was delegate, delegate counter for Walter Mondale. Mm-hmm. So uh, he um, called me at home. And he was going to become Warren Christopher's chief of staff when Chris became secretary of state. They didn't really know each other, but they were each partners in the O'Melveny law firm, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. And people had told Christopher, you should make Tom Donnellan your chief of staff because uh-huh. he knows everything about this town, which was true. Yes. Uh, and so Tom said, Warren Christopher would like to meet you. And I said, really? And he said, yeah. Uh, and the next day was Martin Luther King's birthday, so I went and saw Warren Christopher, and he said, several people have recommended you, and if the president agrees, would you consider being the assistant secretary uh, for legislative affairs? And I said, always believing you should be forthright and, and direct. Um, if you want someone who knows everything there is to know about national security and foreign policy, I'm not the person. I know enough, because you can't do campaigns in this world without knowing mm-hmm. some things, and my Husband was a journalist and wrote about international trade and economics, so we talked about it a lot. But I said, if you want someone who knows Washington and politics and the Hill, maybe I'm the right person. So I ended up becoming the assistant secretary for legislative affairs. And at that point in time, that job required you to do every markup on every piece of foreign policy legislation. You had to learn everything. Uh, And um, it was extraordinary. Uh, I did that for three years. I left for one year because I was exhausted. Um, came back, though, when Madeleine Albright became Secretary of State. She was a good friend and became her counselor. And I have done national security and foreign policy now for many, many years. One of the early issues you worked on uh, at the State Department was North Korea, mm-hmm. uh, obviously in the news right now. You thought you had uh, arrived at a framework to uh, uh, freeze their nuclear program. Uh, what was uh, tell, tell me about that experience and put today's developments in context as they seem to be surging toward yeah. the development of uh, intercontinental uh, missiles that can carry nuclear weapons, a, a big threat. Absolutely. Uh, you know, certainly been reported that when President Obama met the president-elect. He said, the most dangerous and difficult challenge in front of you is going to be North Korea. I think that's absolutely right, and we're seeing that. Uh, And I think it's why Secretary Mattis and Secretary Tillerson went to Northeast Asia on uh, some of their first big trips, uh, because they know it is the big challenge. So uh, when I was... Kim Kim Jong-un is making it pretty clear that this is a major crisis. Absolutely. Kim Jong-un, like his father and like his grandfather, believed that the only way they can survive as a regime is to have nuclear weapons because they believe that the United States presents an existential threat to them. And they watched what happened in Serbia. Uh, They've watched what has happened other places where people who don't have missiles or nuclear weapons end up dying or being killed or being deposed. Uh, so they firmly believe this. And what we have not been able to do is to really impress upon them. It's not about having nuclear weapons for regime survival. It's choosing between nuclear weapons and regime survival. But to go back to the story, when I was counselor, 
uh, for Madeline, which is not lawyer, it's sort of consigliere. Right. Um, we had had a meeting before she became Secretary of State, and I had said I wanted to work on North Korea. And when we had a meeting of everybody who was coming on board, everyone thought within two years North Korea would collapse. Wrong. People have believed that for years. They're incredibly resilient. Uh, they're, uh, because they're closed off from the rest of the world, they keep going. Um, and um, Bob Gallucci, not me, but Ambassador Bob Gallucci, who's a superb diplomat, mm-hmm. uh, negotiated in— He was not- here at the MacArthur Foundation. Oh, yeah, in, exactly. In Chicago. Exactly. He negotiated what was called the Agreed Framework, which was a deal with North Korea that they would give up their nuclear weapons— in, in pursuing nuclear weapons, they didn't have any at the time. They just had some fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Uh, they would give up uh, going for a nuclear weapon, and we would, in return, normalize our relations as well as give them some assistance, help them uh, build in uh, inter-country uh, uh, organization called Keto, the Korean Energy Development Organization that would help them move forward in energy. Uh, and so for the entire Clinton administration, there were no nuclear weapons and there wasn't enough fis- any more fissile material than what was there when Bill Clinton became president. Towards the end of the Clinton administration, um, we knew things were starting to get rocky on that agreed framework. And we saw North Korea uh, testing more missiles and got very concerned. And so the president asked Bill Perry, the former secretary of defense, to start a process to look at what we should do. And I worked with Bill as the person inside government, and then I took over when he stepped down. And towards the end of the Clinton administration, we were in the midst of negotiating an agreement that they would do no more missile testing. And that was important, because then they would never have this delivery mechanism Mm -hmm. for a nuclear weapon. We were close. Um, I went with Madeline to Africa on her last trip. Uh, I had two suitcases, one of cold weather clothes to go to Pyongyang, one of warm weather clothes for Africa. Uh, but the U.S. presidential election, you may recall, never got over. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and we thought we had to brief the incoming administration before we considered my going to Pyongyang, see if we could strike a deal and perhaps have the president of the United States go to North Korea. Uh, so we ultimately decided around Christmas that we could not proceed. Uh, and... Um, when it was decided by the Supreme Court that George Bush had won, I went and briefed Colin Powell and Condi Rice. Powell thought what the hand we were playing was a good one. Condi thought the president would want to do a policy review, and the rest is history. Not only was there a policy review, and they didn't want to pursue it, they didn't want to pursue Kim Jong Kim Dae Jung's sunshine policy, the leader of South Korea, and uh, we found out that in fact North Korea had been starting covertly a enriched uranium program, which is another way to get fissile material. So over the years, no one, whether we have tried inducements and incentives or some limited sanctions, we have never gotten them to change their calculus. Um, it's been complicated because South Korean governments change and they share a border with North Korea. If there were war We would win in the end, helping South Korea, but hundreds of thousands of people would die because they have a large conventional military, let alone now nuclear weapons. Japan is at risk because their missiles can reach Japan today. China was reluctant because North Korea remains 
uh, really their buffer chip right. on the chessboard of, of Northeast Asia. So, and they don't want to flow over the border. And- they don't want to flow over the border. They don't want to precipitate a civil war. They don't want American troops on their border. They don't want the economic crisis. Uh, there are all kinds of reasons. Uh, they don't want to be surrounded by the United States of America. Uh, so uh, President Obama tried to take a sh- crack at this. Um, but I think uh, what I would say today is that no administration, Democrat or Republican, has deployed all of our tools all at once to really take a crack at this problem. It's high risk. It's very difficult. I think China is understanding more and more how risky this has become, how much is at stake. The United States is putting THAAD, which is a missile defense system, in Mm -hmm. South Korea. The Chinese are apoplectic about it because they think ultimately THAAD is about them. Mm -hmm. And also we can use THAAD to spy on them. Uh, and uh, but China, I'm sure Tillerson, Secretary Tillerson said to China, "This is real, and you've got to either be ready to do some things you have been unwilling to do uh, to put pressure uh, on North Korea, or we're going to find ourselves in a pickle." And he was pretty blunt in his public statements he, uh, in saying that the the era of strategic patience is over, and that everything was on the table. Essentially. Uh, uh, ruling in the possibility of, of military action to deal with this. What was your reaction to that? My reaction was, I, I don't, you know, we all have said all options are on the table. Uh, as you know, David, I had the honor of being quite involved in the Iran negotiation. We're going to get to that, yes. Uh, on behalf of President Obama. And uh, President Obama said, you know, we want to have all options available no one wants to, wanted to go down the military road with Iran, and we certainly don't want to go down the road, military road with North Korea because they have nuclear weapons, many, and they may well try to use them, even if they haven't perfected everything yet. They might try anyway. And experts believe, and I'm not a nuclear expert, I know quite a bit about it now, but I'm not a technical expert, but many believe that uh, it's not all that far away that a, that North Korea will have a missile that can deliver a nuclear warhead. So uh, it's a really, really dangerous place, and I think we're going to have to throw everything at North Korea. And, to what, have a shot. and what does that entail? There, there's reports of, of even stricter <clears throat> sanctions, but what, but sanctions haven't seemed to right. Well, I don't think we've deployed them. all the sanctions. China certainly, you know, in the Iran situation, the United States had the greatest economic leverage because of what we call secondary sanctions. And that's the reality that other banks around the world want to do business with our banks because the dollar is the reserve currency. In the case of North Korea, their economic lifeline is China. And China has just recently begun to enforce UN Security Council sanctions and to pull back on coal exports. But they have not done everything they need to do. We have not used all of our banking secondary sanctions to the extent that we can with North Korea, though it won't have quite the same impact it did with Iran. Uh, we, the international community has not enforced all the sanctions, cut off all the lifelines that North Korea has to its financial assets as poor a country as they are. Uh, so I think there are a lot of things we can do in the sanctions arena. I think we can array our military forces in a way that says we mean business and we're ready to go. 
President Obama did that in the case of Iran by commissioning and deploying a weapon that could penetrate an underground one secret facility mm-hmm. that Iran had, and the Iranians knew we could do it. Um, I think that there are probably some things we can do in the spooky world of uh, intelligence and covert action that I wouldn't talk about uh, even on your podcast. Um, and I think that we can mobilize the world community in a way that we have not. All to do this, we need to have very serious conversation, not only with South Korea, which is difficult because they don't have a president right at the moment or a lasting right. president yes, because just, of the impeachment. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and with Japan, uh, and certainly the president has had a discussion with Abe. Um, but we also have to have very serious discussions with China to address the anxieties they have about putting this much pressure on North Korea and try to address some of those anxieties. Do you uh, – all of this presupposes uh, rational decision-making on the part of the of the North Koreans. You've dealt with them, although not necess- – well, you probably I've, dealt I've, with him I've, as well. Well, I haven't dealt with Kim Jong-un because he wasn't there – when uh, when, you were dealing with when I was dealing with his father. So I've been to North Korea twice. The second time was when Secretary Albright went. And uh, we spent about 12 hours with Kim Jong-il. Uh, he was smart. Uh, he was transactional. Uh, he was knowledgeable. Uh, and uh, my own sense is that I don't think Kim Jong-un is crazy in the sense of being completely irrational. He is clearly a dictator. He is clearly ruthless. Yeah. Uh, he killed his uncle shortly yeah. after he came to power. He now killed his Apparently. half-brother exactly, with yeah. VX. And I think that was partly a signal to us to remind us all they have chemical weapons as well as nuclear and conventional military means. Um, so uh, I think, however, he operates from a different paradigm. And uh, crazy as we think it is, he fundamentally believes the only way he survives is to have nuclear weapons. And we have to, the world has to, not just the United States, but the world has to show him that it is a choice between those weapons and survival. You know, the, uh, the question becomes, um, if all of those things don't work, as you point out, there's great risk, I mean, enormous risk to any kind of military action, not just to us, but particularly to the South Koreans, Abs- to the Japanese. Japanese absolutely. Um, might it come to that? You know, I would hate to think that it would because it is horrifying and it could reach the proportions of war that none of us understand as horrible as Syria is, and it is a tragedy of immense proportion. It, it would be nothing compared to this. And if Kim Jong-un used a nuclear weapon, which would be quite possible if he felt his back was up against a wall, uh, I I just – it's unimaginable. And I think that most people in this day and age have no idea of what that would be like. We – one of the reasons I think President Obama, who was really courageous – to make his speech in Prague about how we should get to zero nuclear weapons and how nuclear weapons were the scourge of our future uh, and got a Nobel Prize for setting out that agenda. The reason it's hard to get traction is because 
the average everyday citizen finds it unimaginable that moment will come. So I hope that moment doesn't come and using all of the tools that we have to put pressure on North Korea while leaving an opening for dialogue with them, and that might have to start at a secret level as opposed to a public level for a lot of complicated reasons, uh, is high risk. I believe it is worth the high risk because the alternative is almost unimaginable. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right right back with uh, Wendy Sherman. How much confidence do you have in this administration and this president to handle something as delicate as this situation with North Korea? Very little. I think it would be a challenge for any president. Um, I obviously was an incredibly strong supporter for Hillary Clinton. She was the most prepared person ever probably to become president because, as you know, David, nobody's ready to become president Uh, But she had been Secretary of State. She'd been a United States Senator. She'd lived in the White House as First Lady. Uh, She is an incredibly studious person, as you know. Uh, So even uh, Hillary Clinton would have found North Korea an incredible challenge. So this is tough for anybody, but uh, what I think has been most dismaying and most concerning about President Trump is that his use of tweets and his use of hyperbole and... Including about nuclear weapons. Including about nuclear weapons. has com- And certainly his saying that President Obama wiretapped him, which has now been proven by everyone to be absolutely false, has undermined his credibility in the world. I travel all of the time. And besides, people in other countries always ask me, what the heck? I'd use other language, but we're on the air. What the heck is going on in your country? We've Uh, had worse language on this podcast, by the way, Uh, so knock yourself out. (laughs) Uh, Besides saying those kind of things, they say, you know, they can't believe him. They can't trust him. Uh, So when you undermine your credibility in that way, your ability to manage a situation like that, like North Korea is extraordinary, and he doesn't have a team in place. Uh, There's no deputy at the State Department. He wants to promulgate a budget that will cut the State Department by nearly 31%, which will undermine our ability to do diplomacy. And if you're going to throw all the tools you've got against North Korea, you have to travel the world and work capitals everywhere. So he wants to undermine diplomacy and tools of diplomacy and development. He wants to uh, undermine our credibility. He wants to draw back from providing leadership which is in our own national security interest. Uh, Being a leader in the world is not about just doing good for the sake of it. Being a leader in the world is protecting our national security uh, and our military and our treasure. It's an important point because the the notion that's been argued by the president and some of the people around him is that America gives too much around the world. And it's a popular notion, I have to say, with you're you're an old— politician. It's a a popular notion with voters. It's a winner with voters. But uh, the reality is NATO, for example, uh, is important to the U.S. not not simply because of the security of the Europeans, but because maintaining that security is important to us. And they, of course, NATO jumped in on our behalf 
after the 9-11 attack. Right, but- the only time NATO has invoked the article that says, you know, uh, someone being attacked is an attack by all. So the only time they have invoked that article of the NATO charter was for the United States of America. I know that uh, people who are listening uh, who are if there are people listening who are supporters of the president would say on this issue of credibility, well, what about the whole red line issue with Syria and President and President Obama? And did that damage America's ability to 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 do its work around the world? Well, it's very interesting you ask that because I was having this discussion the other day because on North Korea, President Trump just said, time is up. If any other president had said, time is up, it would have been considered a red line. But because President Trump has lost such credibility and he says so many outrageous things all of the time, no one hears him with the same ear. And my recollection of President Obama may be different than yours, David, is that, and you probably know better than I do, what he was doing was really saying that we cannot tolerate the use of chemical weapons against his own people, Mm -hmm. Assad's use of chemical weapons. And yes, we were getting ready for a strike. And yes, I remember on that Friday when John Kerry, I was then undersecretary for political affairs, and John Kerry gave a really stirring speech about how we could not let this stand, that when a leader uses chemical weapons against his own people, he's broken the contract and the international community has to act. And we all expected Saturday morning we would take a strike. Uh, And the president went and thought that he needed to make sure, because there was so much at stake, that the United States Congress was engaged on this issue. Um, So yeah, a lot of us had to take a deep breath and regroup. But it led to... Britain also, the parliament took a walk on the prime minister there on this. No, he did. And and, and I think President Obama would argue that he got the chemical weapons out of uh, Absolutely. I was going to say it it led to Lavrov picking up on a comment that... uh, Lavrov was minister minister of of Russia, Russia, picking up on a comment that John Kerry had made in his speech where he said, well, I... And answer to a question, well, I guess if Assad were willing to get rid of the chemical weapons, then we wouldn't have to take military action. So Lavrov picked up the phone and called Kerry and said, okay, let's do it. Yeah, I'll deliver Assad. Uh, you deliver, help deliver the rest of the world. And we went off to Geneva and, and did that agreement. One area where the Russians were cooperative Absolutely. was in the endeavor that you were involved in mm-hmm. with Iran. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that came about. And you were involved uh, almost from the beginning of this uh, and at a very deep level uh, at first covertly and then uh, uh, and then overtly. Um, how did that whole thing evolve? So the reason I had the privilege to do this is because as the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, I'm the political director of the United States, was when I was in government. And the negotiation among the P5 plus one, that's the permanent members of the Security Council, the five permanent members, plus one is Germany, and coordinated by the European Union was because I was the political director and that negotiation was being done at the political director level. This was um, because a UN Security Council resolution that had 
been taken that the P5 plus one coordinated by the high representative of the European Union should have this negotiation with Iran. And Iran had agreed to it. And my predecessor, Bill Burns, who went on to be deputy and is an extraordinary yeah, career great diplomat, diplomat, great diplomat, had uh, begun this um, a little bit, but it really got engaged when I became undersecretary. At that time, Ahmadinejad was the president of Iran. And uh, uh, quite frankly, we traipsed around for a year and a half to all kinds of places, uh, but Ahmadinejad wasn't at all serious about having any negotiation. They spoke in Farsi, we spoke in English, everybody had a set piece. Uh, Helga Schmidt, who was my counterpart for the European Union, would spend hours negotiating where we'd have the next round. We went to Almaty, we went to Baghdad. Uh, we went to Baghdad and everybody was so concerned about security. We all met in Amman and came in on U.S. military planes to Baghdad. The Russians, the Chinese, all the Europeans, all of us on the same airplane. It was mm. quite crazy. Um, but then um, uh, we saw that there was a possibility that Rouhani would become president. And timing does matter in negotiations. Ripeness matters. And the other thing that was ripe was we had a president of the United States, Barack Obama, who understood that if we were going to get a deal with Iran, we might have to agree to a very limited enrichment program under very strict verification and monitoring. Enrichment is one of the vehicles, enriching uranium to get fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Plutonium is the other way to create fissile material. And this was a big change in American policy. And the reason the president made this decision is because Iran had mastered the entire nuclear fuel cycle. So even if we bombed all their facilities, we couldn't bomb away knowledge. They knew how to do what they knew how to do. And they'd be able to recreate everything all over again, and they'd probably do it underground and in secret. So the president and then Secretary Clinton, who understood this equally as well, decided they would test out with the help of the Sultan of Oman, who had first come to John Kerry when he was uh, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and said, I think I can help, um, sent uh, uh, an emissary to Oman to find out whether something could happen here. And that led to a secret effort led by Bill Burns uh, and Jake Sullivan, uh, who was uh, – became head of policy planning for Secretary Clinton, which I joined later in the process, uh, to see whether, in fact, an interim agreement could be reached that would give us the time to reach a full agreement. Uh, that actually began to proceed. All of that happened in English. It turned out one of the members of the previous group um, spoke English, but we never knew it, and he became part of now Foreign Minister Zarif's uh, team, uh, Abbas Arachi. Uh, and um, I then brought that agreement that still had lots of brackets in it into the P5 plus one negotiation. Uh, and that ultimately led to an interim agreement signed by everyone. We thought it would take six months to get a final agreement. It actually took us over a year to get that final agreement, and it was a slog every bit of the way. What made it possible was first and foremost a president who knew what the objectives were, 
and what he required of us, that every pathway to fissile material, including a covert pathway, would be shut down. And Barack Obama learned every detail of this agreement. And it's very technical, incredibly technical. A secretary of state who was dogged, we all know John Kerry will try and Mm -hmm. then try again and then try again another time and believes in the power of personal relationships. Uh, Secretary of Energy, Ernie Moniz, who is just fantastic uh, and gave us enormous technical help. And then I had a team that was doing the day-to-day negotiating that was first-rate backed up by hundreds of people in the U.S. government. But we also arrayed our military power. We also used our intelligence capabilities. We also, as I said, the president deployed uh, a, uh, a weapon that could penetrate the underground facility that uh, Iran has had built. We sent teams around the world to, uh, not only after we had imposed sanctions and got the UN Security Council to impose sanctions, but to enforce those sanctions, we did everything uh, in a really constant, constant, very focused, and ultimately successful effort. And we worked with Congress. We, I tease that I negotiated inside the government, because everybody in the interagency had to agree, negotiated with the Congress, because we briefed them all of the time, hundreds of briefings, negotiated with the P5 plus one, both bilaterally and as a group, negotiated with partners and allies, Israel, of course, on a regular basis with the Gulf countries. But not successfully. Not successfully. But technically, every step of the way, they knew what we were doing, and they were immensely helpful, immensely helpful. Let me just ask you, uh, though, you you know, we know, and you can enumerate what was accomplished, 97% of the of the enhanced uranium removed from the country, reactors shut down, uh, invasive... Uh, Very invasive uh, monitoring and monitoring. verification. Yeah. Uh, the critics uh, note that it, it it's a deal that expires over time and, and Iran can go back to their nuclear program uh, beginning 10 years from now uh, with some steps up. And then... Um, the issue of the uh, of the sanctions that were uh, that were removed and yielded to them money that critics say can be used for their terrorist uh, support for their terrorist their sponsorship of terrorism Hezbollah and so on. So what say you to all of that? So what I say to all of that is that I believe uh, that if everybody complies, this agreement lasts longer than 10 years. It is true that some things begin to change after 10 years, but a lot of the monitoring and verification stays on for quite some time. Uh, and there are other technical things that will make this sustainable well past that 10 years. That, that said, uh, I understand the critique, but there are some flaws in the critique. The options that the president had were to try to get to close down all of the pathways to fissile material, or he could have bombed all of the facilities. And as I said, bombing all of the facilities would have gotten rid of them. We can do that, but they could be reconstituted. And in the meantime, Iran would have retaliated, and they probably would have retaliated first by sending many, many, many rockets over Israel, uh, putting our troops in Iraq in immediate risk. Um, So it would have perhaps even uh, gone into an Asian-Persian, Arab-Persian war 
of quite a great size. So great risks to take military action. And we wouldn't have bombed away their knowledge. Sanctions, people said, just have more sanctions, put them on. What people don't understand, I think, sometimes is sanctions never stopped Iran's program. When around in the early 2000s, Iran had 164 centrifuges. When we uh, finished this negotiation, we had to deal with 19,000 centrifuges. Sanctions are meant to sharpen a choice for a country, to bring them economic pain, so they decide they want to get rid of that economic pain. But it never stopped their program. Could you have gotten... uh you could have gotten stronger American sanctions. The question is, could you have held that coalition together we, that President Obama built around these we, we tougher could, sanctions? We could not have because the only reason that we had everybody stay together, the only reason countries like Korea and South and Japan stopped um, uh, and reduced the oil that they imported from Iran is because we were committed to diplomacy. So the day that we stepped away from diplomacy... Uh, they would have those sanctions would have frayed. So they would have gotten the money without having to make any of the sacrifices exactly. that were exactly. For and under the and agreement. on the money and on the money. The last point I want to make: uh, people have thrown all kinds of numbers around. They're all wrong. Uh, there was about a hundred billion dollars in frozen assets and foreign bank accounts. That was Iranian money. We're not talking about U.S. taxpayer money. Mm-hmm. Of that, a hundred billion, uh, our Treasury Department, our intelligence community thought about fifty billion was available. To the Iranians, the others were in non-performing loans or Chinese loans, uh, and that they'd probably keep that $50 billion abroad because they'd need that currency for trade. That said, we always said to the Congress that they would probably use some of the money for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and for Hezbollah, and that we clearly would have to keep all of the sanctions in place and vigorously enforce them to stop Iran from proliferation, uh, from the arms trade that it did, from their human rights abuses. And we'd work, have to work very hard with Israel and with our Gulf partners on a strategy to stop Iran's nefarious behavior. So we never told everybody we could get everything done in one deal. And indeed, oddly, at the beginning of the negotiation, the Gulf country said, just don't discuss anything else because we're not in the room and you're talking about our lives and our futures. Were you were there points along the way when you said there's no way we're getting this done? Absolutely. Many points. Even towards the end, uh, there was one day on a particular issue some someday the book will be written, but I think it's too soon to do that. Uh, but one issue and I assume I, you should write it, right? Oh, I don't know about that. But, but their their publishers listen to this podcast all the time, <laughs> so we should encourage them. Well, I'm I'm working on uh, another book, but it'll it'll uh, make some use of the Iran negotiation, mm-hmm. but um I think it's too soon to write the details. It would undermine the the deal itself. But that said, there was one very uh well-known issue and uh, towards the end I thought it it wasn't going to get solved. It simply wasn't going to get solved. And the last issue to be solved, which was very controversial, one of the last big issues, was the UN Security Council resolution and that very tricky issue of missiles and uh, arms embargo uh, that the Russians and the Chinese wanted none of. We wanted a lot of. And we had all agreed we'd leave it to the end because by then everybody would want to come to closure. So the Russians and the Chinese wouldn't get everything they wanted, which was nothing, and we would get something we wanted, though maybe not as much as we wanted. You know, all of this speaks to the, the, the power of global alliances to get 
problems done. The the uh, the philosophy of this administration, the new administration, is that uh, we should proceed primarily on the basis of bilateral negotiations. Uh, What's the flaw in that argument? The flaw in that argument is issues cut across borders, (laughs) whether it is climate, which I know this administration doesn't believe in climate change, Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, terrorism, which they certainly are concerned about. Terrorism doesn't pay attention to anybody's borders. Uh, And in fact, Secretary Tillerson Uh, We're speaking uh, in this podcast the week that the 65-member coalition that President Obama built and Secretary Kerry, Secretary Clinton and Secretary Kerry built is coming to Washington because when it comes to counterterrorism, you can't— Anti-terrorism coalition. Right. You can't do it alone. So the flaw in bilateral is nothing happens in this world alone anymore, as if it ever did. Yeah. And as was seen in the case of the Iran agreement, if you didn't have the leverage that all these countries working together brought in terms of the economic power, uh, you couldn't have brought them to heal. Let me finish up by returning to where we began, which is you started as a community organizer and a social worker. Uh, How did that prepare you for uh, sitting at the table with Iran and these other countries, and the uh, or North Korea, um, you know, Tip O'Neill once said, "All politics is local." <laughs> um, but uh, you started off very local, very local, and ended up very global. Yes. Yeah, so I say, as I teased before, my caseload has just changed over the years, and I think that I learned a set of skills, and I think everybody can learn a set of skills and then bring that to the work you do. So social work teaches you to begin where the person on the other side of the table is, not where you are, to understand what their interests are, knowing what yours are and not giving them up. And certainly in the Iran negotiation, we never gave up our interests. Uh, And the president was very clear about what we had to achieve. And so whether you're stopping a road, as Barbara Mikulski did, or you're stopping a nuclear power, you have to pursue your self-interest while understanding what the other person is seeking, what the other party is looking for. Uh, It helps you to see the entire landscape, to see 360 degrees. I talk about the Iran negotiation as a Rubik's Cube, that there were all these unbelievably complex pieces. And it would never, the the press would always say, well, what are the odds? And I'd say, well, it's binary. We're either going to get there or we're not. And you could get to... 95%, 98% of the way there. And if you didn't get that last 2%, you didn't have a deal. And it's the same thing when you're organizing. I also believe that uh, even though I was trained as a community organizer, I was also trained in clinical skills. And probably some of them have been helpful along the way, whether that's with members of Congress or dictators. (laughs) Well, I wonder what uh, President Trump would think uh, were he listening to this podcast at the suggestion that the art of the deal begins with social work and organizing. Well, you know, soon after he was elected, uh, I was traveling abroad, coming through Dulles Airport, as I often do, and picked up a copy of the art of the deal because I wanted to understand him. And uh, uh, indeed, uh, he's got some negotiating skills. But you know what, David, when you're building a building and a very uh, elite building. If the building doesn't get built because you can't get the zoning, uh, you can't get the money, and the president as a businessman rarely used his own money. He always got loans, leveraged other people's money. 
um, then, you know, you go on to the next project. And those wealthy people go live someplace else. When you're negotiating to stop a country from having nuclear weapons, the stakes are just a little bit different. And the complexities of it are quite different. And it is true that uh, President Trump learned everything there was to learn about what is necessary to build something. He, he knew how to put the zoning together, how to put the financing together, uh, how to uh, sometimes, uh, you know, sort of go on the offense against the community to get what he wanted. Uh, but in international relations, in these kind of efforts that we're going on, in American security, you have to work and play well with others to get your interests met. And you have to learn details that are quite complicated and quite difficult. And it remains to be seen whether he understands any of that. It does indeed. Well, maybe those building and zoning skills will help him get his wall built down there. He has, yeah. He's got some eminent domain problems down there just, on the just border. Just a few, the, sort of a 1,200-mile uh, border in Texas, all of which will have to require eminent domain. Yeah. Interesting. Indeed. Wendy Sherman, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.